Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. So, we're in Joshua chapter 9 today. Joshua chapter 9. The message is called, Rightly Responding to a Wretched Ruse. And yes, I'm quite aware that there's a preponderance of R sounds in that sermon title. What can I say? I'm a slave to alliteration. I'm just kind of a freak that way. But Joshua chapter 9, Rightly Responding to a Wretched Ruse. What is a ruse? It's a scheme, it's a trick, it's a a ploy, a contrivance, a deception. I'll give you a good example of of a ruse. I'll tell you the story of the fake blind man. So this pitiable creature with dark glasses and his little tin cup was standing on a street corner, patiently waiting for some small contribution. A kindly man passed by and generously dropped a dime in the poor old fellow's cup. Then for some reason... The man turned around and to his surprise saw the blind man's glasses pushed up on his forehead and his eager eyes closely examining the recent gift. I thought you were a blind man, said the disgruntled donor. Oh, no, I'm only substituting for the regular blind man today. I'm not really blind at all. Well, then where's the regular blind man? Oh, it's his afternoon off. He's gone to the movies. That, my friends, is a ruse. So you already know a lot of the context for today's passage. A few weeks ago we were in chapter 6, the battle of Jericho, the victory that God gave them there. Chapter 7, because of the overconfidence of some of the men of Israel and because of the sin of Achan, uh, they suffered a demoralizing defeat at the hands of the people of Ai. But then in chapter 8, God granted them victory in the rematch with the people of Ai. And so the Israelites uh, seem to be back on the right track. Or are they? Well, not exactly. They uh, hit a bit of a snag in their strategic plans to, uh, to take the, the, uh, the promised land as they encountered some folks called the, the Gibeonites. But the response to this situation by Joshua and his leaders actually shows some godly character on their part. And we'll get to that part a little bit later. But three, three things really. Three things that I want you to notice from the text this morning. And the first thing we notice is a daring deception. A daring deception. Look at verse 3 if you would. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they acted deceptively. They gathered provisions and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins. Uh, and old wideskins cracked and mended. They wore old patched sandals on their feet and threadbare clothing on their bodies. Their entire provision of bread was dry and crumbly. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant land. Please make a treaty with us. Now these people, these Gibeonites, were actually a subgroup of, of a larger group of people called the, the Hivites, or Hivites if you prefer. Uh, these Gibeonites knew there was no way in the world that they could defeat the Israelites. 
In fact, verse 2 says that other kings were forming alliances to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now the Gibeonites, on the other hand, they had developed their own survival plan. And then in verses 7 through 13, we see more detail of, of how the Gibeonites spun this fictitious tale about being from a faraway land. And to really sell it, they, uh, they wore old clothes. They brought this dry, crusty bread, uh, cracked wineskins. They, they said that, hey, you know, when we left this journey, uh, the, the bread had just been freshly baked and the wineskins were new and and all, all that sort of thing. And then they compounded the deception by claiming that they had been led to the Israelites as a result of hearing the great things of Israel's God. Well, that last part was, well, partly true. Uh, they had no doubt heard of the, of the great feats accomplished by Israel, Israel's God. Uh, in fact, verse 9 it says, your servants have come from a faraway land because of the reputation of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame. But you see, they didn't approach the Israelites to join them in worship of their God. They came to the Israelites out of fear of their God. And so really the big problem in this story, uh, the big problem with this proposed treaty really stems from the fact that God had instructed Joshua and the Israelites not to make any alliances with the people in Canaan, with anyone. They were not supposed to align themselves with any non-Israelites. And it's at this point in the narrative that things really begin to go south uh, for the Israelites. Now, you know, there wouldn't have been a problem if they had just stuck to God's plan. Uh, in 1785, a poem by Robert Burns famously stated, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. You know why our plans often go to pot? <laughs> because they're not God's plans. And that was the problem here. There was a young man named Elliot Huck. He was a 14-year-old from Bloomington, Indiana. And he had qualified for the National Spelling Bee. But he skipped it. The 2007 National Spelling Bee was being held on a Sunday. And in Elliot's eyes, the competition conflicted with the biblical command for Sabbath rest. Elliot said, I always try to glorify God with what I do in the spelling bee because he is the one who gave me the talent for spelling. Now, I'm not going to spell and give glory to God in that. And dropping out was not an easy choice for Elliot. Uh, he loved the time that he had spent in Washington, D.C. at the 2006 national competition. And he was really looking forward to, to more of the same. But even so, this young expert speller concluded, I have accepted that God knows what's best, and I'm just going to do what he says. Wisdom out of the mouth of babes. If we would just stick to God's plan, trust God, do what he says, obey his instructions. Well, the narrative here in Joshua chapter 9 shows how the Israelites fell for this Gibeonite ruse, hook, line, and sinker. So the first thing we've seen here in the text is the daring deception on the part of the Gibeonites. But in addition to the daring deception, I want, to, want you to notice the second thing, a blatant blunder. Blatant blunder. Look at verse 14. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but did not seek the Lord's decision. 
So Joshua established peace with them and made a treaty to let them live. And the leaders of the community swore an oath to them. The men of Israel did not seek the Lord's decisions. And Joshua established peace with them and made a treaty. Yeah, that's a definite oops. In fact, that's a double mistake. Joshua, you, you know, you, you weren't really supposed to do that. You know, God told you not to align yourselves with any of the Canaanites, but you did it anyway. And, and to be fair, I mean, to Joshua and the Israelites, with this one exception in chapter 9, uh, they did hold to that instruction. Because a couple of chapters later, Joshua chapter 11, verse 19, it says that no city made peace with the Israelites except the Hivites who inhabited Gibeon. All of them, meaning the other cities, were taken in battle. Now, the reason this was a double blunder was not only because Joshua had made a treaty when he wasn't supposed to, but because he and the Israelite leaders did not seek the counsel of God. And so they failed to see the truth. The Israelites allowed themselves to be deceived by this, this cunning ruse. Now, when we read this narrative, you know, we, we probably find ourselves wanting to kind of wag a finger of disdain at them and say, how could you have been so foolish? Well, you know, we tend to forget that when we point a finger of condemnation at somebody, we've actually got three other fingers pointing right back at us. Now, the oversight, it seems, you know, fairly obvious to us, right? Yet how easily do you and I actually fall into the same trap? I mean, yeah, we, we've all got our own Gibeonites in our lives that want to deceive us, and they often succeed. But who are they? Who are our Gibeonites? Well, I can tell you who, who the three most common ones are. And the first one we'll call the devil's schemes. The devil's schemes. I think one lesson that we can learn in this account is that Satan is deceptive, and he's going to use anything he possibly can to convince God's people to compromise. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that when we don't inquire of the Lord, when we make those decisions for ourselves without consulting him first, well, the devil's going to blind people's eyes. Eyes of both the believer and the unbeliever, for that matter. Of unbelievers, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this age, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan will work really hard to get us to listen to the lies that he whispers to us. He's, he's very sly. He'll sneak up on believers. 1 Peter 5, 8, and the Apostle Peter warns us to, to be sober-minded, to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. You see, Christian, Satan, our enemy, wants to possess you. Okay, now not in the sense of, you know, the gathering demoniac being demon-possessed, you know, not like the Linda Blair head spinning around, spitting pea soup kind of possessed. I mean, he wants to own you. Here's the problem. If you've given your heart and life to Christ, he can't have you because his Holy Spirit is already indwelling you. And the Holy Spirit is not going to share space 
with the enemy. And so Satan can't have you. He cannot possess you. So here's his secondary objective then. That is to oppress you, to make you miserable, to utterly ruin you. And just like the Gibeonites did with Joshua and Israel, Satan will frequently use very clever, very subtle ways to draw us away from the things of God. Now, Christians today, we need to remember that Satan, he's probably not going to get us to try to deny the entire Bible, or at least not all at once. He'll try to, to get us to discard the bits and pieces that we're not comfortable with, you know, that we don't like having to obey or that we have problems believing. And he'll whisper his little lies, you know, really? You actually find that claim in the Bible to be reasonable? Or he'll use the classic ploy from Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say that? I mean, how, how does Satan entice us to compromise in small ways? Well, he's much more content to do it that way because he knows that the more we compromise in small ways the much, much easier it is to begin to compromise in large ways. And so oftentimes, he'll try to break us down incrementally, a bit at a time. He oftentimes will, um, he'll tempt us to keep a little corner of our lives just to ourselves, to try to hide it from God, not surrender control of that part of our life to God. Or, you know, he'll, uh, one of his ploys is he'll, he'll wrap his lies up with, with just enough truth to make it seem palatable to people to the point that, that he can convince them to swallow it whole. He'll whisper lies like, hey, nobody will know. It's okay. Go ahead. And slowly, step by step, the devil has drawn you further and further away from God. He's insidious that way. So there's the devil's schemes, but there's another type of Gibeonite in our lives that we need to be aware of. I call it the dishonorable's scams. Okay, who are the dishonorable? Well, it's any you know, unscrupulous or unprincipled person. Uh, someone who really doesn't have any moral compass whatsoever. And let's be honest, the world is full of them. Solomon said in Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright guides them but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. You've seen it. I mean, you've seen a lot of examples. Medicare scams where con artists pose as a Medicare rep to get uh, people to share their personal info or calls claiming that your student loans can be liquidated. Um, right. Identity thieves will send you bogus texts or emails claiming that your account needs to be updated because they want to steal your personal information. Or... Maybe you've gotten an email from a Nigerian prince promising you a large sum of money. Yeah, if you're gullible enough to fall for that one, then I'm not sure I have any pity for you. Uh, people claiming to be construction workers or roofers who come to your home after a storm or a natural disaster, saying that they can do the repair job on the cheap, but they require a down payment up front. And of course, then they never show up to do the work. There's all types. You got uh, prescription drug uh, scams, you got funeral and cemetery scams, you got bogus investment schemes, reverse mortgage scams, and so much more. 
all because there's a world full of people out there with no qualms about deceiving you, about destroying you for their personal gain. What's worse? Those scams even exist within the church sometimes. Now, we know that false prophets arise both within and without of the church. Uh, Jesus warned us that false Christs, false apostles will come and will attempt to deceive God's elect. I think that's why Jude, Jesus' half-brother, wrote in Jude 3 and 4, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. So your first two Gibeonites are basically the enemy and the world. The devil schemes, the dishonorable scams. Here's the third one, and you may not like this one, but I call it the deceptive self. Did you know that the message of just about every movie with a Disney princess is the same? You know what that message is? Oh, just follow your heart. Follow your heart and your dreams will come true. I can just hear Jiminy Cricket singing it right now. When you wish upon a star, makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. Oh, it sounds sweet, but it's also incredibly dangerous. Why? Because of what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Oh, Eric, but the, the heart wants what the heart wants. Okay, well, I want a pink Cadillac convertible, but that doesn't exactly suit God's purposes for my life now, does it? I mean, if God granted me everything that my heart has ever desired, my life would be a shambles by now because I would not have learned to make God's desires my Desires, And so Jeremiah was right. The heart can lie to us. So ask the Lord. Ask Him if that thing that your heart really desires, that thing you want so badly, is something that He actually wants for you. Because if it's not, you're just deceiving yourself. You see, those words, He sought the Lord's decision, should describe every decision we make. Not, well, he read his horoscope, or he had a confab with his buddies, or he just went on gut instinct. If you're not seeking the Lord before making important decisions, not only are you susceptible to, uh, susceptible to deception, but you end up making really poor decisions. And you put yourself and those people around you in compromising situations, just like Achan did in chapter 7, when he kept some things for himself that were intended for the Lord's treasury. And just like Joshua did here in chapter 9, when he'd been told not to make alliances with anyone. Church, we have to be vigilant to safeguard ourselves from the devil's schemes, from the dishonorable scams, from the deceptive self. Our three worst enemies, <laughs> the devil, the world, and ourselves. So far, the text has shown us a daring deception then we saw a blatant blunder. But I want you to notice a third thing. 
a graceful gesture. A graceful gesture. Verse 18 says the Israelite people were not happy with this situation. And they, surprise, surprise, grumbled against the leaders who'd made this oath with the Gibeonites. Look what it says in, in verse 19. All the leaders answered them, We have sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This is how we will treat them. We will let them live so that no wrath will fall on us because of the oath we swore to them. They also said, let them live. Then look at verse 26. This is what Joshua did to them. He rescued them from the Israelites and they did not kill them. Joshua and the leaders of Israel kept their oath to the Gibeonites, even though they had been deceived into making that oath. Why? Well, because of the Lord's example, because of God's character, because God keeps his promises despite the failures of Israel. Even though Joshua and the Israelites had entered into a bad alliance, they kept their oath. They swore an oath by the Lord God himself. Yes, Joshua messed up. He messed up royally by not consulting God. And a potential enemy was allowed to live. But Joshua and his leaders had made the Gibeonites a promise. And they were morally and spiritually bound to keep their word. So really what we've seen in Joshua chapter 9 is, is kind of a tale of two peoples, a tale of two tribes. On the one hand, you've got the deceptive Gibeonites who deceived for their own personal gain. And let me just say this, church. If you, like the Gibeonites, are engaged in deception, what you may not realize is that you're being deceived yourself. That you may actually be uh, influenced by the devil. John 8, 44, Jesus was talking to a group of Pharisees and he said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. So on the one hand, you've got the deceptive Gibeonites. On the other hand, you've got the oath-keeping Israelites. Yes, like the Gibeonites, if you deceive, you can definitely be influenced by the devil. That's why you want to be an oath-keeper like Joshua and his leaders. You see, if you give your word and don't keep it, well, that's just another way to allow yourselves to be opened up to the devil's influence. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 37, that even better than pledging an oath, we need to be persons of our word. He says, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Even though they've been instructed not to make alliances with the peoples of Canaan, the Israelites let their yes be yes. They kept their word. Now, understand this, church. You know, two wrongs won't make things right. Now, just like two lies will not uh, create the truth, breaking their word to the Gibeonites wouldn't have rectified the problem. Yes, the Israelites were kind of put, you know, between the proverbial rock and a hard place, 
And they had sort of an ethical conundrum to deal with. But the right thing to do was to keep their oath. You see, God is a promise keeper. And Joshua and his leaders were promise keepers. And may you and I be men and women of our word as well. Because as James 4.17 says, it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. In fact, I think really the, the big idea behind Joshua chapter 9, I think the application that's really timeless that you and I need to take home with us is this, that God keeps his promises and so should we. It's simple, but it's profoundly true. God keeps his promises, so should we. That's one lesson we learn from this account in Joshua chapter 9. This historical account also serves as a cautionary tale, though. Fortunately for the Gibeonites, thanks to the grace of God, they were allowed to live. But their ruse was not without consequences. Yes, Joshua let them live, but look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, On that day he made them woodcutters and water carriers, as they are today, for the community and for the Lord's altar at the place he would choose. So because of their deception, the Gibeonites were forever made subservient to the Israelites. Because of that deception, they spent the rest of their days as lowly woodchoppers and water boys. Now hopefully you and I you know, can learn something from this account in Joshua chapter 9. But I think if we're going to apply this personally, not only, do, not only do we need to remember that, you know, God keeps his promises and so we should as well, but I think if we're going to apply this, we have to ask ourselves this. How do we protect ourselves from deception? How do we protect ourselves from the Gibeonites in our lives? Now, for some of you, that might actually be easier than it is for the rest of us because some of you might actually have the spiritual gift of discernment. Spiritual gift of discernment really is the ability to distinguish between God's truth and deceptive doctrines. Now, for the rest of us, one of our best responses is found right here in the text. Verse 15 gives us the most obvious strategy, and that's the power of prayer. Unlike the Israelites, we should seek the Lord's decision. In other words, pray. Ask Him for discernment. Ask for the Holy Spirit to help you discern between truth and lies. Pray fervently. Pray consistently. Pray persistently. In the parable of the persistent widow, Jesus said in, in Luke 18:1, to pray always and not give up. And you know what? Prayer should always be proactive and not reactive. It's the first step that we should always take in any endeavor. You know, not something that we forget about or set to the side until there's a crisis in our lives. Or as the late Stephen Olford would say, pray when you feel like it, pray when you don't feel like it, pray until you feel like it. So we protect ourselves through the power of prayer we also protect ourselves from deception through the wealth of the Word. The wealth of the Word. Stay grounded in God's Word. Make it your habit to do as the Bereans did in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. They examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. 
Now, the Bible gives us plenty of warnings about false doctrine, false prophets. And you know what? The best way to guard against that stuff, to guard yourself against false doctrines or false teachers, is simply to know the truth. You want to be able to spot a counterfeit? Well, then study the real thing. Be a believer who rightly divides the word of truth, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.15. Absorb the truth of the Bible. Matthew 24, Galatians 1, Ephesians 4, Colossians 2, 1 Timothy 6, Titus 1, 2 Peter 3, Jude 17 and 18. All of these passages contain warnings about deceptive doctrines. In fact, every single New Testament book, with the exception of Philemon, contains warnings about false teaching. Why? Well, simply because ideas carry with them consequences, especially the false ones. Truth and its fruit will produce goodness, but untruth and its fruit will bring about some very undesirable consequences. You see, Satan didn't come to the first couple, Adam and Eve, in the garden with some external armament or some uh, visible weapon. Instead, he came to them with an idea. Remember what that idea was? You can be like God. Eat the fruit. And it was that idea embraced by Adam and Eve that condemned them and the rest of humankind with the only remedy being the sacrificial death of His Son, Jesus Christ. So we protect ourselves from deception through the power of prayer, through the wealth of the Word. There's a third one. We protect ourselves through the comparison to Christ. We measure everything against that standard of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of, of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So we protect ourselves through the power of prayer, the wealth of the Word, the comparison to Christ, and then the fourth one, the testing of truth. The testing of truth. In other words, we take God's Word and we test it. We live out the truth of the Bible. We do what it says. And then see what results of that. Uh, Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to His good purpose. Now, when Paul said, work out your salvation, he was not in any way suggesting that you can earn salvation through works. What he meant was, take your salvation and put it to work. I mean, just like the weightlifter who goes to the gym to work out his body, we are to work out God's plan for us. So live the Word. Test it to see if the claims of God are true. As James said in James 1.22, be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
That's how we protect ourselves from the Gibeonites in our lives. That's how we are able to walk in truth. But you see, without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you're still vulnerable to attack. In fact, he's the one person that you can count on to never, ever deceive you. In fact, Jesus has the power to save us from the most sinister deception of all time. The lie that says that you can save yourself. See, Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's by grace that you're saved, not by works. It's by God's grace. Titus 3, 5, he says, not by works of righteousness that you have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. You know, the belief that somehow there's something that I can do to gain salvation is a lie. A lie right out of the bowels of hell that has kept a vast multitude of people in darkness. Paul said in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.